This is DIA Connections. My mission at that time, and the Defense Intelligence Agency's mission, was the removal of al-Qaeda senior leadership and remove Taliban senior leadership in order to stabilize the country. Khrushchev was a man who was terrified of nuclear war. He said quite often that if there were a war, the living would envy the dead. I do remember talking to Tom Cruise several times, and one time he asked me, Bio, what's the most fun part of your job? Bio, what's the scariest part of your job? And so I told him, you know, about uh, the, the unlimited maneuverability and the power of flying. No matter the crisis, you have to be careful not to have your hair on fire all the time. Nobody likes to follow a sourpuss. He leaned towards me and he goes, Yakov, how would you deal with Gorbachev? And I'm, I'm, I'm looking around, I'm going, am I the most qualified to answer this question? I would have to put myself in a self-hypnotic state where I had to go down and relax. And when you go down, you start visualizing. But when the third eye opens, you see it. Provocative comments from fascinating guests covering a wide range of topics from the second season of DIA Connections. Welcome to the best of season two. So you're a regular listener and you've listened to every episode, right? No? Come on. What's your excuse? It can't be because you couldn't find us. DIA.mil, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Divots, Spotify, we're everywhere that you are. All right, we get it. You're busy. No worries. We've got you covered. That's the beauty of a best of show. But maybe you've never even listened to DIA Connections before. Maybe a friend told you how great it was, so you popped over to your favorite podcast platform, decided to start with season two, the best of, and of course that means you need a refresher on what we're all about. The DIA is the Defense Intelligence Agency, and we're a part of the Department of Defense. Our day job is to analyze the military capabilities and intentions of foreign nations. For the most part, that's pretty obvious. We're trying to keep an eye on how many tanks Putin has left or what his next move might be in Ukraine. But that's not what DIA Connections is all about. DIA Connections is about finding the connections between DIA and everyday life. We talk about the different people and places and things that you might not think would normally intersect with DIA. Now feel free to use the knowledge you gain listening to DIA Connections in your everyday life. Say you're at the family dinner table talking about the latest episode of Stranger Things. You could say, hey, did you know that DIA had a secret psychic program called Stargate? Or you're at the pub with your buddy. You order a drink and it reminds you of the Yakov Smirnoff beer commercial and you tell your friend, hey, did you know there are less nuclear weapons in the world today? because Ronald Reagan watched a movie and was friends with a Russian comedian? See? DIA Connections is full of fun facts. Now, let's get into the best of season two. Here's what you missed, and this is just a short list. We talked to a former Secretary of State, a Chief Diplomatic Correspondent for CBS, a movie director, an officer on a nuclear ballistic missile submarine, a former press secretary to the president, a Top Gun pilot, an anti-terrorism analyst, a former Major League Baseball umpire, a psychic, a comedian, and, if that weren't enough, we spoke to the boss. Wait, just to be clear, we did not get Bruce Springsteen for the podcast this year. Maybe in season three, 
But for season two, we went one better. We talked to our boss, the 22nd director of the DIA, Scott Barrier. Lieutenant General Scott D. Barrier is hereby appointed director, Defense Intelligence Agency, effective 1 October 2020. One year after Director Barrier took the helm, he sat down with us for a candid conversation, and that was on our second show of the season. Here's a snippet from that episode, where we heard the backstory to his remarkable career in military intelligence. Here's DIA Chief Historian Paul Isaacson with the 22nd Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Was being in the military something that you always dreamed of from, from being a boy? I mean, how do you see that you're on this path now? Is that, are you on the right path? This is going to really sound strange, but I, I knew what I wanted to do since I was about six years old. In fact, on my dresser at home right now, I have a plastic G.I. Joe dog tag with uh, my name, a phony serial number, and uh, the address of our very first house that we lived in. And so I, I, I've kind of known that this would be the path. I didn't know it would be intelligence. I always thought I'd sort of be an infantryman or a tanker or something like that. But this just sort of unfolded in college as I studied uh, Russian and East Central European studies, and they thought that would be a, a good fit for uh, military intelligence back in 1984, and I guess it was. Since you are our new Defense Intelligence Agency leader, can you tell us a little bit about your intelligence background and hopefully why you're a good fit to be our director? At least we hope you're a good fit. Well, <laughs> I, oh, yeah, we hope, we hope I'm a good fit. Now, the, uh, so I, I started out as a uh, career Army intelligence guy. I went to the basic course in 1984, Fort Huachuca, and then had what I would call all the classic intelligence assignments that the Army wanted you to have as a lieutenant, as a captain, as a major, as a lieutenant colonel. Early on, it was about the, the mystique and the mysteriousness of kind of being a soldier and, and what that would mean. I had in my mind this notion early that what we call being Hua, and being an airborne ranger was kind of the pinnacle of what I wanted to be. But once I achieved that in the Army, I quickly realized that there's much more to the Army than that. To serve, really for me, is kind of the, the first thing that I think about. It's like, how can, how can we help this country be a better nation? And I think that uh, leadership is, is really sort of where it sets. I'll take a stab. That sounds like you're a good fit. Thank you. <laughs> I, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> Gathering intelligence via conventional sources and methods has been our bread and butter at DIA for six decades. But that's not to say there wasn't a time when we weren't open-minded to trying a more unconventional approach, even if that meant using psychics. Here's an excerpt from our eighth episode, Strange Things at DIA. I would have to put myself in a self-hypnotic state where I had to go down and relax. And when you go down, you start visualizing. Sometimes you just know things. It's more like a, it, it just comes into the body or it comes into the mind. But when the third eye opens, you see it. I'm Angela Delafiora Ford, and I was remote viewer 079 in the Defense Intelligence Agency's program, Stargate. Angela Delafiora was one of the psychics involved with Project Stargate. The program's mission was to ascertain information about strategic buildings and weapons in the Soviet Union and at other target locations. She was a remote viewer, and her mission was to describe what she could see at target sites. Seems like routine stuff, right? Except by see, I mean visualize. And that's the distinction. 
Hi, Angela. Great to be you? with you. Good. How are you? Thank you for having us. Angela welcomed us into her home for an enlightening discussion about being a remote viewer at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Walk us through very simply what the process was that you used to do your job. We had our desks and offices, and then there was a second building that you would walk over, and there were couches, there were big sofas, there were some beds, there were dark rooms with red lights, and it, and it was quiet. And I would have to put myself in a self-hypnotic state where I had to go down and relax. And when you go down, you start visualizing. The person known as the monitor would give me four, five, six minutes, maybe eight minutes. And then he would say, please access and describe the information in the sealed envelope known as Target A. So there is something in that envelope. It's either a picture, it's either a picture of a person. There could be a question, it could be a, just a written question, but there's something in that envelope that I need to answer. And then I would come out and I would draw pictures and write a report. When you're solving a problem, you get a focus, and this energy will come in and it will give you the focus, but that focus only lasts for so long. So you gotta get in there and you gotta get that answer and you've gotta come out. Thank you for explaining that. I've, I never understood how that worked. So you're, you were like, get in and get out. Get out, yeah. 20, 30, 40 minutes. Anything after 40 minutes in a session, when you're into 50 minutes in an hour, then you're into, you're either repeating the information or you're into imagination. On our first episode of the season, we marked the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attack. On that tragic day, we lost seven of our DIA teammates who are working at the Pentagon. DIA's Chief of Terrorism Indications and Warning Organization was Cal Temple, and he was there on that early morning. He was able to evacuate his team back to headquarters. Here's how he described the actions taken in the days after the attack. I recall the Director of Intelligence for the Joint Staff, Admiral Jake Jacoby, had to go to a series of meetings with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs rightfully asked the entire assembled military room, we're going to war. How do we win? How do we win this war? And that became an intelligence problem as much as it did an operational problem. And uh, we came up with strategies, ideas, concepts to assist the department in thinking about how do you win a war on terrorism. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. Yeah. 
you've got to have an intelligence understanding of two things, places that sit in, on the ground and people who move around. And so we had to develop new intelligence architectures and understandings on locations in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and then the people who were circulating through the region and so on. We also had to figure out who needs this, who needs this. And by that I mean who has the fewest amount of resources now that needs me the most. Most relevant needs Defense Intelligence Agency now. And it came down to two answers. United States Special Forces and Defense Intelligence, Human Intelligence Collection. Those were my customers. And so when we were talking about targets, 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 I organized systems and architectures and product and intelligence that was tailored directly for them. That was my job, and that's what we did. On the same show, we heard from Ari Fleischer, White House Press Secretary to President George W. Bush. He was on board Air Force One with the President as they flew towards Washington, D.C. in the hours after the attacks. This was his riveting account of that flight. I heard the President on Air Force One give the instructions to the Vice President and the Secretary of Defense saying, we're at war. And when I find out who did this, they're not going to like me. And it won't be any slap on the wrist crap. We're going to kick their ass. These are the things the president said that day privately aboard Air Force One. But to hear the commander in chief say we're at war, it just sent a chill down my spine. Now, at that point, the city you grew up in, New York, was attacked. Washington, D.C. was attacked. Your country is for all intents and purposes at war. How were you able to emotionally even do what you needed to do? Well, the amazing thing about September 11th was how unemotional it was for the president and all the team that was around him, myself included. You, you couldn't be like a normal American. You couldn't be emotional. You had a job to do. In my case, my job was to listen to everything the president was doing and saying and to brief the press about it. And emotion just cannot figure into that. And... When we landed at Andrews Air Force Base at the end of the day and then boarded Marine One, when we finally got the all clear, we flew directly over the Capitol and then down the mall. And Marine One banked right at the Washington Monument. It's the most majestic route back to the White House from Andrews. There are several we usually take. That's the most beautiful. And as, Air, as Marine One banked right, the Pentagon came clearly into sight. And it was still smoldering smoke was still coming out and the president said to nobody in particular he just said it out loud the mightiest building in the world is on fire in 2001 president bush appointed condoleezza rice as his national security advisor making her the first woman ever to serve in that capacity we discussed 9-11 with her on the fourth episode. I was the national security advisor on September 11th, and frankly, it was a failure of imagination. We had bits and pieces here and there. We just never imagined that chatter about airplanes might really be about using them as missiles. 
I remember that what we thought when we saw some of that was, oh, they're going to try to take an airplane, hijack an airplane and take the passengers hostage or a kind of old, old uh, script of what had happened. So how do you get to the place that you can imagine the unimaginable? I, Condoleezza Rice, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We heard the former Secretary of State's thoughts on many topics, including when National Security Advisor Rice would first meet a former KGB foreign intelligence officer of 16 years. He had risen to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel before resigning in 1991 to begin his career in politics. His name, Vladimir Putin. It's important to note that our conversation with Secretary Rice took place well before Russia's invasion of Ukraine but her comments were prophetic. I'd actually first met him when he was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg back in 1992. And he wasn't terribly confident and, and he and President Bush talked. We then went through a period of time where I think the Russians believed they had found a strategic uh, relationship with the United States around the war on terrorism. They were actually very helpful in Afghanistan. Uh, they were very helpful uh, because they also were fighting the Chechen. We used to, we said, we don't like the way that you're doing this, but we understand that you have a terrorism problem too, and they appreciated that. But then the Bush doctrine moved on to the color revolutions and to democracy, and that's where Putin got off the train, uh, because he is no Democrat. And he, you have seen the evolution of Putin from not very confident to very confident to arrogant to megalomaniacal. He governs a country, rules a country that essentially and increasingly doesn't believe in him, doesn't believe in what he's saying. He's ruling more and more by fear and coercion, less and less by appeal, which he once had, coming out of the chaos of Boris Yeltsin. And it's a country that really doesn't have much going for it except its military power and its ability to disrupt. 30 years prior to Vladimir Putin, there was Nikita Khrushchev. Our episode, Avoiding Armageddon, was about the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. We told the story of DIA's role in analyzing and providing photographic intelligence to President Kennedy about the missiles placed in Cuba by Khrushchev. The show featured a delightful conversation with legendary journalist Marvin Kalb. During the crisis, Kalb was the CBS News chief foreign diplomatic correspondent in Moscow. Does anybody in the control room know whether Moscow is standing by? Hello, Kalb, are you there in Moscow? David, this is Moscow, standing by. Remarkably, Kalb had unprecedented access to Khrushchev. And that is because years earlier, the reporter had two very unusual interactions with the Soviet leader. He told us those stories. Let's listen to a little bit of our episode, Avoiding Armageddon. And because you spoke Russian fluently, you were able to have two unusual experiences with Khrushchev that I'd love for you to share. Just to set it up, the first occurred 65 years ago, in 1956. You're an attache, and you find out that Khrushchev and his defense minister, Georgi Yukov, have invited themselves to the embassy for, of all things, a July 4th party. So you're tasked with keeping an eye on Yukov. What happens next? We spoke for 30, 40 minutes, and the time passed very quickly, during which Yukov, who had a reputation as a drinker, sucked back eight vodkas. I was having water, but he didn't know that. And so I drank, quote unquote, with him, drink for drink. 
And at that point, Khrushchev asked us to come toward him. He beckoned to us and we walked toward him. And I could see that Zhukov was a bit tipsy. And as he approached Khrushchev, he said, I have finally found a young American who can drink like a Russian. And everybody burst into laughter. And Khrushchev came over to me with that introduction. And he was about five, 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 six in height. I was six, three. And he asked me for my height. The thought ran through my mind at the time that I was three centimeters shorter than Peter the Great. And so I said that. And he burst into laughter. And from that moment on, whenever he saw me, he always referred to me as Peter the Great. <laughs> and you said that being compared to a Russian czar came in handy four years later at the Paris summit, right? Can you tell us the story of waiting for Khrushchev outside the Soviet embassy one morning on your first assignment for CBS? At exactly seven o'clock, these very large iron doors of the embassy clanked open and Khrushchev emerged. We rushed toward him. And at which point his two security people intercepted us, reached into their vests, obviously for a weapon. And Khrushchev interrupted them and said, no, 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 no. Don't do anything, he's fine, he's Peter the Great. And that was a wonderful opening. And we started together walking down the street. And we got toward the end of the block and there were the magnificent aromas of a freshly baked croissant. And there were dozens of them in front of this bakery shop. Khrushchev stopped, I stopped, we both sniffed. We were both enchanted. And I looked at Khrushchev and I said, have you ever tasted a freshly baked croissant? He said, no. I said, let me get some for you. When I rushed in and I got a bunch for him and his security people and my crew and Khrushchev bit into it and absolutely loved it. His face lit up with the joy of a kid eating chocolate first thing in the morning. It was a delight for him. And I realized I suddenly had set up unintentionally the beginning of an interview of significance. And I then began to talk to him about Berlin. I began to talk to him about arms control. I began to talk to him about the YouTube crisis. It was a Wonderful opening story and a heck of a way to begin a career as a foreign correspondent. Missiles were a hot-button topic this season. We did two more shows about them. This is from the INF Treaty Part 1 Missiles and Movies podcast, where we got an up-close and personal look for ourselves. All right, Paul, you think you're ready for this? I'm ready. Off we go. Road trip for the DIA Connections crew. Starting route to Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. We're only going to go a few miles from DIA headquarters, and Siri was purely for dramatic purposes. And I don't think it worked. Proceed to the route. One of the most visited museums in the world is the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. They have two locations, and we're heading to the one on the Mall in Washington, D.C. 
Okay, wow, here I am again. This is such an amazing space. It never ceases to impress me. Wow, and there they are. There's the two missiles, the, the SS-20 and the Pershing-2. Wow, all the way to the roof, amazing. Those missiles were eliminated as part of the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, better known as the INF Treaty. It was signed on December 8, 1987 by President Ronald Reagan and Soviet Union Premier Mikhail Gorbachev. A stipulation to the U.S. signing the treaty was agreement by the Soviet Union to let on-site inspectors monitor and report on the elimination of the missile systems. Those inspectors were from the Defense Intelligence Agency. In both of our INF Treaty podcasts, we explored some of the things that may have influenced President Reagan to move towards eliminating an entire category of nuclear weapons. One was a TV movie that aired in 1983. It was called The Day After. What's going on? Those are Miniman missiles. They're on their way to Russia. They take about 30 minutes to reach their target. So do theirs, right? Missile warning, this is me. All confidence is In President Reagan's diary, he wrote this about The Day After. Quote, it's very effective and left me greatly depressed. Whether it will be of help to the anti-nukes or not, I can't say. My own reaction was one of having to do all we can to have a deterrent and to see there is never a nuclear war. Here's another clip from INF Treaty Part 1, Missiles and Movies. This is from the film's director, Nicholas Meyer. When I talk about the movie, I like to say, this is the optimist's view of nuclear war. This is nuclear war on a good day. When my cut of the movie was essentially finished and I took it over to ABC in Century City and we screened the movie, these were all, you know, corporate officers of the network. And they all came out of the movie sobbing. Right. Well, let's face it. This is a subject that people aren't comfortable talking about or even wanting to think about. So describe the challenge that you must have had to make a movie that you want people to watch and not get so turned off that they turn it off. Making the day after real enough to be, you know, sort of in the ballpark truthful, but not so appalling that people grab the clicker and switch to something else is a very difficult line to tread. Television is all about selling commercial time. Was that an issue for a show like this? Yes, all the sponsors bailed General Foods, General Motors, General Mills, all the generals headed for the hills. Meanwhile, the White House and Ronald Reagan uh, kept hearing more and more alarming things about the, the movie and worrying about its effect on the anti-nuclear movement. At this point, Ronald Reagan had still not seen the movie. Prior to the president seeing it, the decision was made to have the Joint Chiefs watch it. By sheer coincidence, Nick had an old friend that worked at the State Department and was at the screening. So he got a call. Come down to the Pentagon and watch a movie with the Joint Chiefs. And he said, if you are hoping to draw blood over there, you succeeded. Those guys were completely quiet. 
you know, one picture is worth a thousand words. You can talk about this till the cows come home, but it's another thing to actually see it. The Joint Chiefs saw people engulfed by fireballs, turned into skeletons and vaporized. No wonder the White House tried unsuccessfully to cut scenes from the movie two days prior to the Sunday night air date. I was certainly aware of the mounting controversy surrounding the prospective airing of the movie. You couldn't not be aware of it. It's a very upsetting movie. One thing I had not counted on was that one person's mind was, in effect, changed overnight by the movie, and that was Ronald Reagan. Of paramount importance to the signing of the INF Treaty was the relationship between President Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. The Secretary of State at the time was George Shultz, and he said this about the pair. They came to know each other and respect each other. These two men sort of clicked. They clicked on two levels, trust and humor. We explored the latter in part two about the INF Treaty with one of the most popular comedians in the 1980s and a favorite of President Reagan, Russian comedian Yakov Smirnov. What surprises me, American people don't know we have comedy in Russia. We have comedians, they're there. They're dead. <laughs> Good thing about doing comedy in Russia, you have captured audience. They're not going anywhere. Reagan was a joke teller, too, and he liked Yakov's humor so much, he invited him to attend an exclusive Washington, D.C. dinner party. The president used that opportunity to gain insight from Yakov on dealing with his Soviet counterpart, Mikhail Gorbachev. Reagan wanted new material for future meetings with the Soviet leader, who he thought he could connect with on a humorous level. Here's Yakov describing his first meeting with President Reagan to Paul Isaacson. This is from our sixth episode of the season, INF Treaty Part 2, Reagan and Smirnov. Enjoy. First thing he says, have you heard this joke? So he initiates a rush and starts telling me a Russian joke about the guy who wants to buy a car. The joke that he tells me is like... Um, that it takes forever to get a car in the Soviet Union. You know, there's a 10-year delay in the Soviet Union of delivery of an automobile. And you go through a, quite a process when you're ready to buy, and then you put up the money in advance. This man, he laid down his money, and then the fellow he was in, that was in charge said to him, OK, come back in 10 years and get your car. And he said, morning or afternoon. <laughs> and... <clears throat> And the fellow behind the counter said, well, 10 years from now, what difference does it make? And he said, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. That's President Reagan telling me the joke. I crack up. I don't expect it to be, but it, it's immediately like everybody's like it was a tennis match that everybody looks at me. Now it's my, I need to uh, tell a joke. Tell us the joke you came back with to Reagan. I told him when... When Americans landed on the moon, that was a big slap in the face to the Soviet government. So Brezhnev called all the cosmonauts into his office and said, Americans landed on the moon, we have to land on the sun. And they said, we can't do that. 
come regression, we will burn up. And he said, you think I'm stupid? You land at night. <laughs> what, was, what was Reagan's reaction? I mean, everybody cracked up. And I was like, thank God, you know. You hit it off so well with the president that you got additional invitations in the future. Yes, yes. Tell us about what you talked about. He really liked the joke exchange. You know, we would get together. It would be like, here's, here's another joke, you know, and have you heard this one? Then he would get uh, more serious and he would ask me, how would you deal with Gorbachev? Oh, so he actually asked you. He did. That was the second time I met him. He leaned towards me and he goes, Yakov, how would you deal with Gorbachev? And I'm, I'm, I'm looking around. I'm going, is that, am I the most qualified to answer this question? But he really paid attention. He really wanted to know. And I told him, I said, Look, uh, Mr. President, if you want to be friends with Secretary Gorbachev, uh, maybe you, sh you can treat him like your equal, but you need to know that their military is not as great as they say it is, because when they shoot a missile, then they have to go watch CNN to see where it landed. And it, it would crack him up, but, but really he wanted to know just a, a, a person you know, because I'm like going, am I the most qualified here? And he said, yes, you are, because you lived in Soviet regime, socialist country for 26 years, and none of us politicians have. So I'm very interested in actually, how would you approach that? This comedian from Odessa is now influencing world politics. It's hard for me to accept that credit in some ways, because I see myself as just a funny guy. But uh, Mitzi Shore, who, is the, who was the owner of the comedy store, she kept telling me all the way to the end of her life. She said, you and Reagan changed the world. Reagan's head speechwriter, Dana Rohrabacher, said, if the president's giving a speech about the Soviet Union, certainly on the list of people you'd call would be the CIA and Yakov Smirnov. We really hope the seventh episode of D.I.E. Connection Season 2 didn't fly right past you. I gotta give you your dream shot. I'm gonna send you up against the best. You two characters are going to Top Gun. By now, I'm sure you know about Top Gun the movie and the Navy's fighter weapons school called Top Gun. But did you know that the school, which was established in 1968, immediately benefited from the crucial role that DIA played in the technical exploitation of adversary weapon systems for the Department of Defense? In this case, it was the exploitation of Russian MiGs. We talked about that with Dan Peterson. He was the founder of the Top Gun program. We felt pretty good about ourselves when he told us how much the DIA helped to get the program off the ground. In this excerpt from the show, Dan describes his return to base after visiting the Defense Intelligence Agency. I came back with all the battle reports, things that were overclassified at the time. The fleet guys never got to look at them, but we got the information we needed 
to redesign our tactics, which we did. So that's where your organization really paid dividends. You validated all the work we did. I can't tell you how many guys' lives were probably saved because the majority of our students left us, left the graduate school and went back out to the fleet. And we knew what we were doing because we had participated with the IA in uh, very worthwhile programs. In the same podcast, we heard from Dave Baranek. I would go back to Washington, the, the DC area, and talk to DIA, and we would get the, the latest intelligence, observations, analysis of what various threat countries were doing. Dave's call sign was Bio, and he was an air-to-air combat instructor at Top Gun in 1985, when ready, set, action took on an entirely new meaning. A couple of limos came on base with uh, people from Paramount Pictures or Hollywood, other wherever, and uh, they visited the Admiral's office, and the Top Gun CO and XO went over, and they heard about the movie. And then the next day, we all heard about the movie. And I got to tell you, uh, I am not a good predictor because when I heard about this, I go like, you know, whatever. Tom Cruise, he was not a big star in 1985. He was someone we had just just barely heard of. Did he ask you lots of questions? Did you even personally meet with him? I did. Uh, He was uh, young. He was enthusiastic. And so I do remember talking to Tom Cruise uh, several times. And one time he asked me, you know, Bio, what's the most fun part of your job? Bio, what's the scariest part of your job? And so I told him, you know, about uh, the, the unlimited maneuverability and the power of flying. You know those great aerial sequences we've all become so familiar with over the years? Well, that's Bio up there performing those maneuvers. And his work on the movie wasn't just contained to the cockpit. Now, I know that your work on the movie wasn't just limited to flying. They needed your expertise on something else, right? Can you tell us that story? You know, I did not even see that coming. But when uh, the filming was done, the, uh, the Paramount people were looking at their flying sequences and they said... We've got a lot more flying scenes than we expected, and we don't know how to put them together, and we don't know what people should be saying. So they asked Top Gun to send up a a couple of guys, a pilot and a Rio, to uh, help them with all that, and I was the Rio. So the first thing we did was we looked at all the film clips that Paramount had, and we helped them to cut them together in a, a logical sense. Because, I mean, that was our business, was thinking in three dimensions, you know, debriefing and things like that. And Paramount, frankly, they didn't, that wasn't their strong suit. You know, that's why they had us. So you're actually helping Paramount Pictures edit these scenes together. That's amazing. We were sitting at the editing machine. The guy showed us how to operate the editing machine and how to make the marks on the film and stuff. And so it's like we're editing the movie. They put together all these scenes. They had 20 minutes or so of flying. And then he goes, okay, now we're going to show you guys this and we want you to talk. We want you to say anything, whether it's pilot, Rio, talking on the radio or whatever. And we just were Gabby talking through the whole thing. And all the stuff that they say, or not everything, when they say, you know, tally two, right, right one o'clock or whatever, 
We gave them all those words. And then somebody Hollywooded it up. They added the, I'll hook them and I'll fry them. We did not say that. But but that's a, that's something that Goose and the crew, crew says early in the movie. Oh, that's a great story. And Hollywooded it up. I love it. I love it. We hope you've enjoyed this listen back to our second season of DIA Connections. But we're not done yet. We want to take you out by revisiting with Yakov Shmirnov. When we first spoke with Yakov, it was well before Russia invaded his homeland of Odessa, Ukraine. So we thought it would be appropriate to play another portion of that show. You'll know why after you hear it. In this excerpt, Yakov talks about when he first dreamt of coming to America. And the second part is about that dream coming true. One time I uh, woke up, I was maybe eight years old, and I woke up because I heard static noise in our room, and I see my dad uh, sitting next to that big radio and with his ear to it, and I said, Dad, what are you listening to? And he, he goes, shh, shh, don't let the neighbors hear us. I, I'm listening to the voice of America. So now I sat down next to him, and I'm listening, and they're in Russian, they're saying, a uh, woman's voice saying, give us your tired, you're hungry, and you're poor. And I'm thinking, I'm qualified for that. And so he explains to me that she's this tall, stunning woman who is standing in the middle of the harbor in New York, holding a torch, lighting a way for people like me, you, your mother, someday who want to go to America. I start dreaming about Lady Liberty, Lady Liberty. And when I woke up, I start drawing the way I pictured her in my mind. And my mom grabbed me and she said, don't let anyone see those pictures. Liberty is not allowed in this country. It's a crime. We're going to get in trouble. And so that was my introduction to kind of a, my fascination and love romance with America. Yakov experienced a lifetime of highs and lows since coming to America with his parents in 1977. He said, our dream was to be free, free to live the life we chose, not the life that was chosen for us. He also told us about the best day of his life. You remember earlier when he described his boyhood dream of coming to America and the connection he made with the Statue of Liberty when he listened to his father describe it. Well, on July 4th, 1986, Yakov stood next to that symbol of freedom to be sworn in as an American citizen. That was at a celebration in New York Harbor called Liberty Weekend. There she is, the Statue of Liberty, the reason we are all here on this 4th of July to rededicate her on the 100th anniversary of the occasion on which she was given to the United States of America by France. That to be there and realize my my dream was coming true. That picture there, Barbara, of that man sitting holding the Statue of Liberty in his lap. I don't think there could be anything more dignified than that. I was in the front row and ABC did the broadcast and they started uh, with me sitting there with the Statue of Liberty on my lap. That I will support and defend. And I will support and defend. 
the Constitution of the United States and the laws of the United States. So it was a very emotional moment of hearing those words, my fellow Americans, and recognizing he's talking to me and, and feeling all of these emotions of the immigrants that came before me for Ellis Island and, and how difficult it was for, for me to embrace the idea of leaving the Soviet Union, but recognizing that this is my home. There was a place to live. Now I have my home and I will stay here forever. As always, thanks for listening to DIA Connections. We'll see you in season three.